0: Alexander Lawrence Ames, and this is Cloister Talk, the Pennsylvania German Material Texts Podcast. Welcome to Episode 23, Cloister Talk Live, Incense Hill, a conversation with Carrie Moan and Michael Showalter of the Effort of Cloister. In this episode, we will visit one of Pennsylvania's most fascinating and mysterious historic sites and learn what it has to teach us about religious, cultural, intellectual, and social life in early America. This podcast series explores topics covered in my new book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania, published by the Pennsylvania State University Press in 2020. There are many questions and ideas I address in the book that deserve further consideration, so each episode of Cloister Talk dives into one of those topics. During many episodes in the third season of Cloister Talk, we are visiting the various libraries and museums that made publication of The Word in the Wilderness possible. If you'd like to learn more about anything discussed on the podcast, please read the book, which you can order from psupress.org or request from your favorite local bookseller or library. In 1826, the printer S. E. Maryhew published the second volume of a religious quarterly titled The Berean on Shipley Street in Wilmington, Delaware, a small but prosperous port city on the banks of the Delaware and Christiana Rivers, six miles north of where William Penn first set foot on North American soil in Newcastle and 32 miles south of Philadelphia. A miscellany, the Berean featured an assortment of texts of a spiritual and religious character, which were drawn from various sources. Local lore ascribes authorship of one verse included in the publication to a figure of some renown, Francis Hopkinson, who was among the signers of the Declaration of Independence and once served as customs collector in the trading center of Newcastle. The poem, thought to be Hopkinson's, begins on a cynical note, calling into question the sincerity of most Christians' supplications to the Lord. Quote, thousands and twice ten thousands every day, to him a feigned or real homage pay. Like clouds of incense rolling to the skies, in various forms their supplications rise, the verse reads. Quote, their various forms to him no access gain, without the heart's true incense, all are vain. End quote. Troubled by the feigned homage that characterized much Christian worship, the poet took a journey to a mystical, unfamiliar place, where he found pious people who, in spiritual seclusion in the wilderness, came as close as possible to the true nature of God. Quote, in sable weeds you dress the heaven-born maid and place her pensive in the lonely shade. Recluse unsocial you your hours employ and fearful banish every harmless joy." Quote. The poem, I should note, has an interesting print history. Its first known published appearance was in Duchet's description of Ephrata, first printed in the Pennsylvania packet in 1772, and again in a compendium of Duchet's works, printed in 1777. He says the poem was written by, quote, a young gentleman of Philadelphia. The poem is included in Hopkinson's writings, apparently compiled and edited by Hopkinson himself and printed in 1792. The question remains, where was this bastion of piety discovered by the well-traveled poet? A Roman Catholic monastery in faraway France, Italy, or Ireland? A pious Protestant congregation in distant, German-speaking Central Europe? It was neither of those. On the contrary, the poet traveled only 50 miles northwest of Wilmington, Delaware, to the Ephrata community, where Christian mystics had inhabited the Lonely Shades since 1732. Quote, in Ephrata's deep gloom you fix your seat and seek religion in the dark retreat, he recorded. The residents of Ephrata meditated on God in three primary ways, prayer, hymn singing, as well as calligraphy and manuscript illumination. Sometimes they could wield those activities as a single enterprise. Hymns were, in a sense, prayers set to music, and scribes at Ephrata, as elsewhere in German Pennsylvania, lavished time and calligraphic skill to create visually appealing musical manuscripts that blurred the line between aural and visual sensory experiences. The poet so fond of Ephrata states, quote, Tis true devotion, and the Lord of love, such prayers and praises kindly will approve, whether from golden altars they arise, and wrapped in sound and incense reach the skies, or from your efferta so meek and low, in soft and silent aspirations flow. Efferta may have seemed soft and silent to Hopkinson or whoever wrote this flattering poem, but the community's large surviving oeuvre of printed and manuscript texts suggests that evangelical piety often assumed spoken and sung form in this famous mystical stronghold as community members filled the air with hymns and the word of God. Today, visitors to historic Efferta Cloister in Lancaster County enjoy the opportunity to immerse themselves— in the pious spiritual world that the poet found so tantalizing. I am pleased to be joined for this cloister talk by two experienced museum professionals who work at Historic Efferta Cloister and can tell us more about this complex historic site, the artifacts it holds, and what visitors can expect to encounter there. Carrie Moan works as curator at Historic Efferta Cloister. He earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Social Studies with a concentration in History at the former Cutsdown State College. He experienced public history after working as a seasonal employee at Conrad Weiser Homestead in Berks County in 1982 and returned to Conrad Weiser Homestead full-time in 1985. Mohn then transferred to Ephrata to take over management of the collections in 2000. Michael Showalter works as museum educator at the Cloister. Showalter began to volunteer at Efforta Cloister when he was in high school and has been at the site since that time. He previously worked at the historic Cornwall Iron Furnace and the State Museum of Pennsylvania in Harrisburg, but continued to volunteer at Efforta in his free time. He's been on the staff at Efforta since 1996. Thank you both so very much for joining me on Cloister Talk.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks, Alex. It's my pleasure.
0: Michael, let's set the stage for this conversation. If you had to describe what a Cloister was and is in just a couple sentences, what would you say?
2: Well, the founder of A Cloister, Conrad Beisel, he saw the world as a corrupt place, full of chaos and devastation. He really hoped to provide an escape from that world in a wilderness retreat, He could follow his own ideas about ways of living and worship. His theology was a mixture of many different ideas, including pietism, mysticism, anabaptism, and millennialism, and Sabbath worship. Uh, By the mid-18th century, he gathered nearly 80 celibates and about 200 married followers who shared his search for a better life. Uh, Together, they built the community and accomplished some um, impressive work. Because some members followed a monastic lifestyle, then cloister was attached to the community, although the members never really used that term. And like any community, Effort experienced periods of celebration and uh, sometimes of contention over a history that covers nearly 250 years. The remains is a unique example of choices and commitments made by early Americans took advantage of William Penn's promise of freedom of conscience in the new world.
0: Carrie, tell us about the site as it exists today. What buildings remain on the Ephrata site, and what do your collections consist of?
1: The Ephrata Cloister is fortunate to have several original 18th century buildings. The half-timbered 1741 Zoll, or Meeting House, and the log 1743 Sarin or Sister's House, are the cloisters' signature buildings, and are the best-known buildings. Other 18th century buildings include the Stone Bakery Building, another log building interpreted for weaving and cloth production, the founder Conrad Beisel's half-timbered residence, a log structure interpreted as the Physician's House, a half-timbered small bakehouse attached to the Physician's House, half-timbered Carpenter's House, and the Frame and Half-Timbered Printing Office, which is the an 18th century building with a 19th century frame addition. The cloister has two other 19th century buildings, the 1837 Effort Academy Schoolhouse and a barn now used for the museum store and offices. The site also has a reconstructed log stable, another log exhibit building moved to the property, two cemeteries, a visitor center and several buildings for maintenance. The five remaining half-timbered structures in this setting are unique in North America. The core of the permanent collection at Ephrata consists of original items that were made and used here and have always been here. The furniture, original fractured wall parts, wall placards, and other items were acquired with the buildings and grounds in 1941. Another group of original artifacts include furniture, original publications printed at Ephrata, and other items that have been brought back to the cloister through donation and acquisition. A third group of artifacts include 18th and 19th century items that were brought here by residents and remained here. Rounding out the collection are some purchased artifacts and reproductions to complement the original artifacts on exhibit.
0: Carrie, sticking with you for a minute, please give us a sense of how Ephrata transitioned from an active spiritual community to an iconic historic site.
1: After the last celibate members of the Ephrata community died in 1813, the property was taken over by the former married members of the community known as householders. The householders incorporated the Religious Society of German Seventh-day Baptists of Ephrata in 1814. German Seventh-day Baptist Church for short. The structures were used by the church for charitable purposes. During the latter part of the 19th century, around the time of the centennial, the cloister experienced a revival of interest and was rediscovered by artists, writers, and curious visitors. This renewed attention stimulated interest in preserving the physical remains of the cloister in the early 20th century and culminated in the acquisition of the buildings, grounds, and artifacts by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in 1941.
0: Michael, give our listeners a sense of what visitors can experience when they come to Africa. What kinds of programs and activities happen here?
2: As Kerry said, today the historic site preserves about 28 acres, and they really represent the core of the original 250-acre community. We have nine buildings, which Carrie mentioned, uh, including that impressive sisters complex, the sisters dormitory, a four story log building, 72 by 30 feet, and, and the meeting house, the Zoll, built in 1741, is a five story building. Along with tours of these buildings, the visitors can explore the other buildings on the site, the bakery, the Weaver's house, the printing office. And uh, within these structures, the many original objects remain. We offer guided tours throughout the year, on special occasions we have programs that include uh, concerts by the Ephraim Cloister Chorus. This is a very talented group of volunteers who performs the original music written at Ephraim in the 18th century, and they often perform right there in the original meeting house. The entire sound in the original building truly gives a, a life to those words and music One visitor in in 1771, he said the experience, quote, thrilled to the very soul. And he went on to write that, uh, quote, I almost began to think myself in the world of spirits, the objects before me were ethereal.
0: Carrie, tell us more about the role of music at Ephrata. What artifacts of musical life still remain at the site today?
1: Music was very important from the very beginning of the Ephrata community. There were three very early hymnals of original compositions and hymns from Europe printed for the Ephrata community by Benjamin Franklin through the 1730s. The first book printed in German Gothic type in North America, the Vrocks Heugel, was a hymnal printed for Ephrata by Christopher Sauer in 1739 in Germantown. This hymnal included additional original compositions and old favorites from Europe. By 1745, the Ephraim community had set up their own printing operation and produced their first hymnal of all original compositions, the Turtle Taube, in 1747. The Ephraim community's last collection of musical compositions was published in 1766, the Paradisisches Wunderspiel. The permanent collection has a very good representation of music books, including printed hymnals with the words, and manuscript music books with the tunes. Beginning in the 1960s, there has been an effort to build the imprint and music books in the collection.
0: Carrie, if you had to pick a single artifact in the efforta collection that best represents the meaning and significance of the site to American history, which would you pick and why?
1: That is an excellent question. The Martyr's Mirror has a great story and was published by the community in 1748-49 at the request of the Franconia-Mennonite meeting. This is my pick among many items. Next to the Bible, The Martyr's Mirror was the most important devotional book in the Mennonite and Amish communities. At 1,500 pages, it was the largest book published in colonial America. Peter Miller, who later was the community leader after the death of Conrad Beisel, translated a 1685 Dutch language edition into German. Somewhere between 1,200 and 1,300 copies were printed. Leftover, unbound copies were later appropriated by the Continental Army for rolling cartridges during the Revolutionary War. After the war, copies were unused, that were unused were available for purchase. Uh, Effer had one of the most complete Uh, book publishing operations in all of colonial America.
0: Michael, tell us about how the interpretation of the Ephrata site has evolved over the years. And specifically, what is the role of religion and spirituality in the interpretation you put forward of the Ephrata site in its entirety and of the illuminated manuscripts, which are such a famous product of Ephrata?
2: Bernard Beisel, the founder of Ephrata, had a very complex, and poorly understood theology, even in his own day. At one point, Benjamin Franklin asks a member to please publish something so we can understand what the place is about. The answer that Franklin received was that we don't want to publish it. We're still learning. If we learn we're doing something wrong, we can't change if it's in print, so we're not going to write it down. That puzzle has lasted through the generations. And it's really only been in, I will say the past 15 to 20 years, that we begin to understand a little bit about the thinking of the people that created this community and the motivations that led them to produce the architecture, the music, and the wonderful illuminated manuscripts in the collection. Those manuscripts are existing in collections around the world because of their beauty and their value. In the past 15 to 20 years, we've worked hard to bring the story of theology, the ideas, real motivation of the people that created Ephrata into practice as we share the stories. So we no longer just talk about fact that they slept on a wooden bench with a block of wood for a pillow, that's the curiosity most visitors remember from visiting in the past. And it is a curiosity. But it doesn't get to the real motivation. And that's now what we try to discuss was the belief that God was coming soon. You needed to be always prepared, never drift off into a dream that the devil could use to enter your mind. That was the reason for a wooden pillow and a wooden bench. And it's only in the past 15 to 20 years we've been able to bring those true stories to life and make the entire episode of effortless existence into a meaningful reality.
0: Was the comparative lack of discussion of that religious component just because it's such a complicated story? Was it possibly about the political resonances of talking about religion? Was it the what people wanted from an historic site?
2: No, I, I don't think there were any reasons that worked against, there was nothing oppressing discussing this. It was not a politically motivated uh, or a, a polite conversation that we don't talk about religion that kept us from talking about it. I think it was partially a lack of understanding, maybe not even partially, maybe largely a lack of understanding of what this religion was all about. And it was really the remarkable work of other scholars, including Jeff Bach and several others. Uh, Alan B. Myers worked on music for many years. Uh, Current scholars, such as uh, Dr. Christopher Herbert, working on the music. And you, Alex, working on the the works of the illuminated manuscripts. It's those continual searches for answers. And those answers, always when you think you're at them, all you're really uncovering more questions, but it's the uncovering those answers that have begun, have begun to allow us to really tell a much richer story of the people who created this really unique community in early America. It's really your entire thesis, Alex, the, you know, focusing on religious nature and devotional nature of this manuscript work that is so important. And it's a feature that has really not been well explored, and we continue to not do not well explore it uh, at the site. Uh, we do that in many levels. We 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 have really only begun to become comfortable exploring those subjects in the past. I would say dozen years or so, maybe twenty years. Um, you know, for fifty years we interpreted the site without ever discussing any form of religious ideas of these people. And I look back on those years, and I was part of those years. I look back on them and think, how were we able to do this? And I realize we really robbed both the present visitors and the generations that built the place Problem of the honor of understanding their story completely.
0: Carrie, tell us about the challenges and opportunities of interpreting the history of religion and spirituality using physical artifacts.
1: I'd like to echo what Michael said. Uh, I think that the tour and the interpretation at Ephra has gone from a building and artifact-driven interpretation to more of a tour of interpretation of ideas and how the ideas help to generate the buildings and the artifacts i think that you know taking that in consideration about the uh, ideas and the theology of effort helped to create the artifacts and buildings that are there now and um the very plainness of the furniture because the idea was that we weren't going to be here that long we don't need real fancy furniture. We need functional furniture. I think that helps to also, you know, reinforce uh, the ideas, the theological ideas. The, uh, the, the fact that they created these uh, very large, in some cases, wall placards of, of uh, biblical sayings and, and other things uh, to help also reinforce uh, the idea and uh, the thoughts Behind not only Beissel's ideas, but also biblical ideas. If you're working in a structure and you see the same placard virtually every day, you know, that will help reinforce the whole lifestyle that we are practicing here. I think everything goes hand in hand. I think, you know, it has gone from being maybe totally driven by artifacts and the way the buildings are to ideas supported by... Physical remains of the of the cloister,
0: Michael. You have a lot of experience impressing upon visitors the importance of Ephrata Cloister to American history. What, for you personally, is most meaningful about Ephrata as an historic and cultural site?
2: You know, it's really hard for me to pick one absolutely story or object from our collection. Ephrata was always a place of curiosity in the 18th century, and. In many ways, it's really a place of curiosity today, even for those of us who are connected to the site. Part of that curiosity is the fact that it contains so many stories that are both unique to Ephrata, but they also have a universal theme and a very general theme, both in the past and the present. Much of life in early Ephrata seems odd until you begin to understand that the people who built the community sought a better life while they struggled to contend with whatever they lived with in the present time. That led them to make choices we as modern people may not choose, but to them, those choices seemed to offer a foundation on which to build a life of hope and comfort in a promising future. Along the way, they were able to achieve some amazing accomplishments that would not be considered as really thought of as products from a rather small backwards community in the 18th century their significant structures rivaled the size of almost any great buildings found in the colonies. The printing press, which Carrie just talked about, produced impressive works, including the largest book published in the colonies. The musical output of over a thousand original compositions, including works by the first female composers in America, is really remarkable. And the illuminated manuscripts produced at Effort capture a dedication and focus to devotion which the, the real detail that's seldom duplicated. So, you know, why is all this really significant to American history? Uh, well, this work is all the reflection of a truly unique American creation. It had roots in the old world. but was permitted to flower in the liberties of America. It is in many ways the story of American struggle, invention, and perseverance to search for a better life and a testament to freedom of choice provided in this country. That story is one which everyone can identify with in some level. At the historic effort of Cloyster, we are able to show that, and it stands as a reminder how this physical and intellectual story played out in the past and as an inspiration for present and for future generations as they continue to strive for a better world.
0: The famous historian Julius Friedrich Saxa wrote in 1899, quote, of all the words and names in the vocabulary of Pennsylvania, none embraces so much of what is mystical and legendary as the word Ephrata, To be sure, Ephrata has exercised a powerful hold over the collective memory of Pennsylvania Germans because of the artifacts created at the site and the prayerful, mystical world such artifacts evoke today. The material culture of Ephrata demonstrates the power of objects to serve as thresholds to meaning-making and spiritual experience for the faithful. Just as calligraphic ornamentation of holy texts represented a compromise between the invisible, internal work of the Holy Spirit and a thirst for a visual, material witness of faith, so too embellished musical manuscripts helped render visible and tangible the Christian devotional activity of hymn-singing. These sensory worlds converged at Ephrata. Quote, Oh, let the Christian bless that glorious day, when outward forms shall all be done away, when we in spirit and in truth alone shall bend, O God, before thy awful throne, proclaimed the pious Anglo-American poet who visited the Efforta community and whose work was reprinted in the Berean in 1826. Despite this supposed urgency for the passing away of outward forms, scribes at Ephrata and across German Pennsylvania combined their desire for introspective spirituality with a deep affection for engaging with visual representations of faith via text, calligraphy, musical notation, manuscript illumination, and other artistic and communicative media. Thank you so much Carrie and Michael for the fascinating glimpse into the past and present of Efferta Cloister you have offered on this episode of Cloister Talk. Any listeners interested in learning more about Efferta can check out its website www.effertacloister.org. If you'd like to do more reading about the cloister, the standard text on the topic today is Jeff Bach's well-known work, Voices of the Turtle Doves, The Sacred World of Ephrata, published by Penn State Press in 2003. You will also find references to Ephrata and its manuscripts interspersed throughout The Word in the Wilderness efforta documents figure especially prominently in Chapter 2, The Spirit of the Letter, Calligraphy and Spirituality During the Long Era of Manuscripts, and Chapter 4, Incense Hill, Song, Image, and Ambient Manuscripts. Also, be sure to visit wordinwilderness.com slash sources to see examples of printed works and manuscripts created at Ephrata. On the next episode of Cloister Talk, we will continue our exploration of Pennsylvania-German repositories of material culture with a stop by the Schwenkfelder Library and Heritage Center in Pennsburg. If you enjoyed this episode of Cloister Talk, I hope that you will consider reading The Word in the Wilderness. To purchase a copy, just visit psupress.org, or you can also request it from your favorite local bookseller or library. Please note that Penn State Press is a nonprofit scholarly publisher and part of the Penn State University Libraries. Your purchase of the book supports the work of nonprofit peer-reviewed academic publishing, a vital component of the United States information landscape in the 21st century please also check out the new Word in the Wilderness official study guide available at wordinwilderness.com slash clubs, which can inform your reading of the book and point you in the direction of further resources to explore. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode of Cloister Talk.